everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Palm Peeps. Today, we are extremely excited. We have a star-studded panel of critical care experts here with us, and we're going to discuss one of my favorite topics, and I think one of the most interesting topics in critical care medicine, the evaluation of undifferentiated shock. Before we get to our guests, though, as always, I'm here with Monty, my partner in crime. Monty, how's it going? I'm doing great, Ferb. Uh, like you said, this is a really common topic in critical care, so I can't wait to hear from our three guests today. You know, I think through residency and fellowship, this is a common topic of discussion, but mastery is really tough. So hopefully we can all learn some tips and tricks today, and I'm happy to meet our guests soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like one of the reasons I'm so excited today is that our panel is not only uh, three folks who are just amazing at critical care medicine, but also people who are incredibly dedicated and experts at medical education. So we're really honored to have all of you uh, with us today, and it should be a great discussion. Totally agree, Firth. And I am I'm super honored and excited to uh, first introduce Dr. Molly Hayes. Molly is an assistant professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. She's the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Beth Israel Deaconess and the director of external education at the Carl J. Shapiro Institute for Education and Research. She's also a course director for a yearly CME course on principles of critical care medicine run by Beth Israel Deaconess as well as Harvard Medical School. Um, and she is an amazing person. Um, so welcome to Palm Peeps, Molly. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here, and I feel especially honored to be in the presence of such Twitter greatness. <laughs> like that, that could be a good thing or a bad thing for all of us. Spending <laughs> too much time on Twitter, probably, or a good thing and then a bad thing. In yeah. <laughs> indeed. That sounds great. Uh, next, we have Nick Mark. Nick is a pulmonologist and intensivist at Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. He's also the founder of ICU One Pager, which provides these high yield critical care education one page guides. These like went viral during COVID because they were so helpful. And now you come out with them all the time and I download every single one of them. I love them. They're fantastically helpful for thousands of learners. Really glad to have you on, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Matt Chuba, who's an assistant professor of medicine and intensivist at the Cleveland Clinic, where he's also the associate program director for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. He founded and runs the website zintensivist.com. He has his own associated podcast and is a senior editor at criticalcarenow.com. Such a pleasure to have you on today, Matt. Thanks to you both for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. We're going to hop in evaluating patients with undifferentiated shock. And I feel like this can be so tricky. It comes up uh, very often. And I'd say for me, it was one of those topics where like I learned about it as an intern and I thought it was kind of interesting. But then that first time when you're either a senior resident or a fellow or you're attending and you're on your own and you have that patient who really is truly undifferentiated, it's, it's a pretty scary topic. So having an approach to it and a way to think through it is sort of the way to go. This is going to be mostly a roundtable discussion sort of going through all of this, but I wanted to provide an example of a type of patient where this happens. And I think the patient uh, that I saw recently, you know, sums this up well. So patient with uh, past medical history is in, was in his mid-50s, diabetes, peripheral artery disease, had uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and EF of 30%. Report was he was confused for a few days, not taking medications, also not taking great PO, and then came in with uh, altered mental status after EMS was called. Was found to be hypotensive to the 80s over 50s and hypoxemic on room air. When he got to ED and got some evaluation, he had some infiltrates on chest x-ray, some small effusions, 
had a, like a minimal leukocytosis, white count was like 11.8, but a left shift, no fevers, no clear sick exposures from his history. So this person's at risk for lots of different causes for shock and multiple etiologies, nothing that pops out as a slam dunk right away. So to start off with the basics, which is often the most complicated thing, Nick, how do you define shock for yourself? Is it just someone who comes in hypotensive or is there more to it than uh, that when you have a patient that you're admitting to the ICU? So I define shock as inadequate oxygen delivery to meet the body's metabolic needs. I think it's a really important definition to get right because if you define it in terms of hypotension, you will both characterize some people who don't have shock, who just have low blood pressure because they're asleep as being in shock, and even worse, you'll miss people who have what's called cryptic shock, people who are maintaining a blood pressure but have inadequate oxygen delivery. It's important to remember that inadequate oxygen delivery causes organ dysfunction, and that leads to many different manifestations like altered mental status, low urine output, abnormal liver function. You can also see things like lactic acidosis, elevated troponin. And so the manifestations of shock can be protein, and importantly, you can have low blood pressure without shock, and you can also have shock without low blood pressure. Nick, I love that definition. I think it's so important for our trainees to really bring it back to those like pathophysiologic principles. And I define it in regards to oxygen delivery too, and really break that down and think about cardiac output and your arterial oxygen content. I think it's really helpful for the trainees. It is a great opportunity on rounds to write the formula on the board. <laughs> yeah, I do that every time we have a shock patient. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Nick and Molly. And I think it is um, important for learners to kind of have a good foundation and framework for, for the rest of our discussion. And now that we have a definition of what we're looking for from a broad sense, Matt, I wanted to ask you if you could review for us broadly the main types of shock we should be evaluating for, as well as the most common etiologies. Sure. So I'd start here with uh, cardiogenic shock. Um, so that's something that we can all conceptualize fairly well. Somebody has a uh, pump failure, one kind or another, left side or right side of heart failure. It could be due to a, an acute coronary syndrome. It could be an acute on chronic process, um, or it could be due to something else, uh, such as, you know, intracardiac masses or, you know, more, more arcane things like that. The next thing that I would include would be obstructive shock. Um, the reason I put that next is because in a lot of ways, it looks a lot like cardiogenic shock. And, and to go back to, to Nick's point, these are people, cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, uh, who can have normal blood pressures and it can be horribly malperfused. And that's why I really like to think about those two similarly. Of course, obstructive shock implies that there's something in the way of blood flow, usually going from the right to the left. And in most cases, this is a pulmonary embolism or a, uh, a tension pneumothorax or, or cardiac tamponade. Um, moving on from there, uh, hypovolemic shock, um, often caused by hemorrhage, um, you know, in, in the developing world, uh, we don't see a lot of totally gross volume depletion, though it does happen from, you know, diarrheal illnesses and things like that, but it's usually related to hemorrhage. Similar these, similarly, these patients can be profoundly malperfused and sometimes have a normal blood pressure. So I think that's another consideration that's worth making. When you have a hypovolemic shock patient in front of you, that's hypotensive. Things are, are really, really decompensated. And then finally, the thing that I treat most often uh, is distributive shock. Um, and this is most often due to sepsis where you have um, loss of your um, systemic vascular resistance. There are some other etiologies that can occur that cause distributive shock, uh, such as uh, anaphylaxis, or, or less commonly, like a spinal shock, uh, like a neuroaxial type of a shock. And those are, I think, a decent coverage of the, the main areas that we, we should be considering when we see a patient with undifferentiated shock. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a combination of those things. 
Thanks so much, Matt. Yes, I think the four kind of big buckets that we're looking at right now, as you mentioned, are cardiogenic, obstructive, hypovolemic, and distributive. And a follow-up question for you, Matt, um, or as well as Nick and Molly, um, are there other more esoteric etiologies um, that we may see less often, but are important to remember at this time as well? Yeah, Matt, I think you mentioned some for me, like the anaphylaxis. I always just like have to make sure I check through it. If I do a mental check each time. Is there any chance of that? Is there any chance of tamponade? Yeah, and I think like critical valvulopathies are a thing that often people we don't think about unless you work in a cardiac ICU, then it might might reign truer to you. But if you have an acute uh, mitral regurg or an acute aortic insufficiency or you know really severe aortic stenosis, those are things that people don't necessarily think about. They're usually thinking about I need to have a blown LV or a blown RV or something like that in order to have uh, poor cardiac output from the heart. Yes, I always would just I would throw in there. I always think about endocrinopathies. We actually recently had a mixed edema coma case who came, presented in shock, and just something to always think about. And everyone says, "Oh, the TSH is normal." It's not that, but that can fool you. So always make sure you're checking the T4. So I keep that at sort of as a zebra in in my mind when I'm thinking about shock. That reminds me, I didn't even mention adrenal insufficiency when we talked about distributive shock too. So that's another another important yeah. point. I think that pretty much covers it. I, I would say at a very high level, I like to think of shock broadly as three categories, a pump problem, which is defined as low cardiac output, a pipe problem, which is defined as low systemic vascular resistance, or a tank problem, which is defined as low preload. Um, I think, you know, that with that framework, you, you can find any of these causes. A couple rare ones that I like to think about, um, endocrinopathies are definitely one, toxins are another, especially in somebody newly admitted to the hospital, thinking about calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. Dynamic hyperinflation is one you see occasionally in the ICU and somebody who's hyperventilating. And then I think we mentioned just about all the causes of distributive shock. Maybe the one or two to add to that would be effective anesthesia and sedation, very common kind of a diagnosis of last resort and liver failure, which is often defined by a low SVR from accumulated vasodilators. That's amazing. Now our listeners have no excuse for missing any of these types of causes. <laughs> that was a great list. I'm going to refer to that all the time. I know, like we're 10 minutes in and there's already so many pearls. Um, <laughs> so that's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know uh, Furf and I and others listening, we all definitely um, like to know what is driving the shock. And we're going to spend some time with you all today trying to figure that out more. But one thing that always comes up is the initial strategy for stabilization. Um, this is open to the three of you. Um, you know, do you have an initial strategy, fluids, um, pressors, or if there is a presser, is there one a presser of choice in these undifferentiated situations? Such a great question, because in critical care, we often have to treat and diagnose, where in the rest of medicine, you can first diagnose and then treat. So for me, I will sort of very quickly make an assessment if I think this is cardiogenic or not. And if not, in any of those other categories, I'll trial some fluids. And then I will start pressors early and undifferentiated to buy myself some time. And I don't know about these guys, but I think norepinephrine is my go-to. I agree. Norepinephrine is never the wrong choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, it also has the advantage of having some inotropy as well. So even if it is cardiogenic, you're covering your bases somewhat. I thought about throwing a wrench in and just saying that I really wanted to use dopamine in this situation just to rile everybody up. No, I agree with everybody. Uh, norepinephrine, I, I, as soon as I see somebody that's, you know, in profound shock, norepinephrine gets strung up um, while everything else is happening. And then we can consider whether we think it's reasonable to give empiric fluid based on the tiny amount of information you might have about the patient at that point. And that's about it. 
I'll also add it's not uh, regarding stabilization, but I'm really quick to give antibiotics and um, and then sort of peel them off later, even in that very early phase where we're still trying to figure out, is it cardiogenic? Is it obstructive, et cetera? I'm like, let's just give them antibiotics and then we can figure it out later. Definitely. Yeah, and I th- that, that's a great thing. I feel like we, uh, you guys all said it with the levofed, but very rarely do you get a bunch of doctors in a room and they say they handle the situation the exact same way, but there's just such a consensus here, you know, that this is the right thing to do for it. So I feel like it's a good takeaway for everyone. And then I think once you're starting to do the stabilization, then you sort of get into the fun part of trying to figure out exactly what type of shock this is, or if there are multiple things contributing. Nick, you sort of just gave us a framework before of how you think about it. Do you mind just reviewing that one more time of, you know, the big way those categories are thinking about them and then what uh, physiologic parameters that you're going to try to determine to put people into those categories? Right. So I think, you know, in medicine, it's always nice to have simple frameworks for complex problems. And it's especially nice when you can have a framework that both helps you remember things and helps you understand them physiologically. And so the framework that I really like for thinking about shock is to think of it as having essentially three causes. It can be a pump problem defined by low cardiac output. It can be a pipe problem defined by low SVR, low systemic vascular resistance, or it can be a tank problem defined by low preload. And then within each of those, you can subdivide a pump problem into being cardiogenic and obstructive, which have similar physiology. Within distributive, you could think about that sort of list of causes we talked about, sepsis, anaphylaxis, inflammation, endocrinopathies, medications, et cetera. And then within hypovolemic, you can can think about blood loss, fluid loss, burns, third spacing, or just low PO intake. And all of those together sort of fall neatly into those categories. Yeah, that's great. And and Molly, we're going to talk about kind of each of these categories and, and how we get evidence that supports one or another. But globally, when you're about to approach this patient, you know, are there certain things that you're always going to be thinking about in your head to try to distinguish those categories from each other? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it's all about the history and the physical exam and history, not just the HPI, but also their past medical history. Do we know that they have heart failure? Do do we know that they've had multiple infections? Do do we know they have an endocrine issue, for example? And then physical exam, I'm like, I'm touching them. Are they warm? Are they cold? I'm feeling their pulses. Are their bounding pulses making me think more about distributive or are they weak, making me think about other types of shock? I'm looking at blood pressure. Of course, we already heard that um, hypotension does not necessarily equal shock or shock does not necessarily lead to hypotension. Um, but I am looking at the blood pressure. I'm also looking at the pulse pressure. And if it's wide, I'm thinking about distributive. And then I think um, about their mentation. And all of these are signs of perfusion that Nick talked about early on and reminding myself when I'm at the bedside that shock is decreased perfusion leading to cellular injury, dysfunction, or death, which manifests clinically as this end organ damage. So I'm looking at urine output, mentation, et cetera. Just to amplify about feeling a pulse and feeling the skin, I feel like in about three seconds, just by laying your hand on the person, you can, number one, provide some comfort. You're talking to them as a person. And number two, you can assess their pulse quality. Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it bounding? Is it thready? You can also assess their skin. Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it wet? Is it dry? You can get so much information in just like three seconds it's something that should almost always be your first step in assessing somebody. Yeah. Thanks for echoing Molly's point. I feel like it's something that gets lost when we're outside the room with our computers, <laughs> you know, not going in and evaluating each patient. 
Yeah, Matt, go ahead. So this is really more amplification of what was already said. Um, we're, we're starting to formalize this into a framework in our ICU uh, so that everybody can recognize shock, not just the, the, the fellow or the attending, but the residents, the nurses. So, so we put the framework that Molly mentioned uh, and, and that Nick uh, um, added upon uh, into a framework called the bus. So brain, urine, and skin. So you have altered mental status, oliguria, you know, modeling poor cap refill in the skin category. And if you have any of those positive, you get on the bus and your, your shock evaluation starts. Um, so that's, that's where we're going uh, with that so that everyone can kind of speak the same language. But I really agree that the skin exam, I think the skin exam, I know we're going to talk about physical a little bit. The skin exam to me is the most important exam aside from the general appearance exam. Uh, and the rest of it, I'm going to do with an ultrasound. Wow. The shock bus. I love that. That's amazing. I love that too. Can we steal that in, for my ICU, Matt? Please do. I have a nice little, I have a nice little placard I made for it. I'll send it to you. Amazing. Thanks. <laughs> that, that's awesome. I, yeah, I think everyone's going to be, be either wanting to get on the bus or off the bus. I know we've talked, um, you know, a little bit about, you know, how, how important a history can be um, when it's revealing. However, you know, there's a lot of times when people are coming in um, with shock that we can't get a great history or I feel like it doesn't tell the full story. You know, since we're talking about undifferentiated shock, um, let's assume that the history is not a clear giveaway. So, you know, similar to first patient, you know, what he kind of described earlier in the general case, you know, there, we can assume the patient hasn't been vomiting for three days. So we don't think it's hypo, hypovolemic necessarily or we don't know or they're not having, you know, obvious massive hematemesis. So for these le less clear cases, I turn to physical exam at kind of beginning to parse things out. And I know we've already kind of started that conversation, Matt, but I wanted to ask you, um, are there any other things um, in addition to the bus that you look for um, or can you extend on that? Um, and I think potentially this is one area where I think we're going to probably bring up the JVP um, and want to see what you think about that in your shock assessment. Sure. So yeah, I'd, just to go back to the uh, the skin for a moment, I I think that's probably the most important part of the exam, the physical exam, aside from the general assessment. And general assessment really is not going to tell me what kind of shock the person has, but probably is going to tell me how worried I'm going to be about them. Um, and that and that goes to extend the respiratory exam at least to like worker breathing and tachypnea and you know things that make you so that. So I think overall, I think the physical exam is probably more helpful for risk stratification than it is for identifying a specific diagnosis. In terms of jugular venous distension, I think it can be helpful if it's super severe and you have, are completely absent of other you know. Um, competing diagnoses, in which case, I don't know, I probably don't need to do a bunch of fancy stuff if that's the case. The problem is uh, you can have a CVP of 18 and have a life-threatening infection. So I guess it's like, doesn't necessarily make me feel that much better. I can say maybe I have more than one problem. Uh, I think it's a valuable part of the physical exam, but it's probably not going to differentiate unless I'm trying to differentiate between uh, a you know low and high tank state, to use the terminology that Nick used. Otherwise, that's not super helpful. I'll also add, you know, I, I love the physical exam and I'm always at the bedside, but I, I don't know about you guys, but I think sometimes the JVP exam can be really hard in the ICU. It's not like we're on the wards asking them to, you know, turn their neck or get the light exactly right. They're often intubated or we're about to line them up and there's a lot going on. So I find it can be difficult to get a, a good JVP assessment in, in a really sick patient in the ICU. So I don't rely on it as much as I do on, in my non-ICU patients. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I like that because it brings up like, you know, the inter-observer reliability, which is probably worse in the ICU. And then even if you can see it well, it's not always definitive, right? So like the predict positive and negative predictive values are not always that helpful. 
one thing that I think is we all probably agree on now is that you know in physical exam in the ICU for a new patient, POCUS is really basically part of it at this time. Is you know you should be rolling over an ultrasound and, and taking a look at your patient, especially one who's in undifferentiated shock. And I think they're becoming a cornerstone of training programs and hopefully all over the country. So Nick, how important is POCUS for your shock evaluation, and what are you kind of looking for when a patient first comes in? So I think I think ultrasound is the new stethoscope. And I think the same way, you know, 200 years ago, the stethoscope really changed the way we practice medicine. I think POCUS has really changed the way we practice critical care medicine and increasingly outside of the ICU too. So I think, I just think of POCUS as part of my physical exam. So using that framework of pump, pipe, or tank problems, POCUS can be very helpful to sort of break that down. So first off, I always like to look at the heart. You're just a very basic cardiac echo can give you evidence of reduced cardiac output. It can also indicate specific etiologies of cardiogenic or obstructive shock. So for example, you might see regional wall motion abnormalities that tip you off about an MI. You might see an effusion, an RV collapse, which tips you off to tamponade. You might see evidence of RV failure in pulmonary embolism. You might even see something which is almost pathognomonic, like a clot in transit in the right atria. So look at the heart first. It's very high yield. It can help you figure out if this is a pump problem or not. And then you can move on to the other parts of the exam. So next up, the lungs. Lungs can be informative. If you look at the lungs and you see diffuse B lines, that can support cardiogenic causes. It could be pulmonary edema. If you see more regional B lines, that might be more like a pneumonia. Now, remember that none of these are totally specific, totally sensitive. But if you see an A line pattern everywhere, that can be much more consistent with dry lungs uh, and more hypovolemia. And that's also useful because when you start to think about what are you going to do therapeutically, if you see dry lungs, that's a sign of fluid tolerance. The harm of giving fluid is likely low. Next, uh, after looking at heart and lungs, I like to move on to the IVC. So this is admittedly an imperfect tool for measuring preload because right atrial pressure is an imperfect way of measuring preload. But there's still useful insights that we can glean from looking at the IVC. A dilated IVC with reversal of flow when you Doppler those hepatic veins strongly suggests very high filling pressures, and that's consistent with cardiogenic or obstructive shock. A small collapsing IVC can be more suggestive of distributive or hypovolemic. It's not going to answer the whole question for you, but it can help tip your odds one way or the other. And if you think about this whole process as a Bayesian one, you start off you don't know anything. You look at the history, you have some priors, and then you do your exam. And every piece of information you gain tips you towards one of these ideologies or another. The IBC can tip you one way or the other. Um, finally, while you're looking at the IBC, you can look at the rest of the abdomen. And you, there are some things here that you can see that can be very useful, like blood or fluid in the abdomen. Occasionally, you'll see something like um, there's a kidney that's clearly got an obstruction or there's a gallbladder that's clearly obstructed and inflamed. So sometimes the abdomen can be really informative. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's like an unbelievable overview of what yeah, I'm going through in my head as it goes. I suppose one thing I should add to that is um, if your exam has led you to think about pulmonary embolism, prudent to continue looking down at the legs. And then you can look for you can look for DVTs because if you find a DVT, even if you're equivocal, equivocal about whether they have a PE or not, well, you, that's just told you you need to anticoagulate them. And it's also changed the post-test likelihood of PE a lot if you see a DVT somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. 
I have a couple follow-up questions for you, but I want to just turn to Molly and Matt quickly to say, you know, see any tips for people out there who are kind of learning how to do bedside poker? It's not the easiest skill. And so I'd be curious about what you guys have done and how you've uh, started to, to build up your skills for it. Yeah, Matt, go ahead. So I think the thing that I want to emphasize, I, I mean, I agree with everything Nick said. I think, and we're going to talk more about this later, I imagine, the IVC is probably the most abused test in medicine uh, in terms of ultrasound because it's really easy to obtain. Um, and it leads to some uh, unhealthy conclusions sometimes. It is absolutely a useful diagnostic test, but you have to try to decide what information you're trying to glean from it. Um, for me, it's most helpful in states in which I think the patient has a low stroke volume. And I'm trying to figure out it's because they have cardiac limitation or stroke volume versus if they're actually truly hypovolemic. But unfortunately, it usually gets applied as, well, the, the IVC is collapsible, so the patient is simply fluid depleted, and, and then my, my brain stops at that point. That's my biggest issue with that, that evaluation. But it absolutely is useful in the right hands with the right mind. I've also found that some um, trainees, when they're just learning, are actually looking at the aorta and not at the IVC. So I really try to make sure that they're saving a clip for me, not just like a static image. And when I teach this, I really teach them to find both the IVC and the aorta so that they can tell the difference and kind of go back and forth with the ultrasound. They say in law that a verbal contract is not worth the paper it's written on. I feel like a point of care ultrasound without a saved clip is kind of the same thing. Totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. I like it. Yeah, let's keep going about IVC now. I mean, like you said, it's a it's something we all talk about, and and Matt, as you said, sometimes it is interpreted the wrong way. So, uh, you know, what do you think is the right way to be doing it all the time? And then who on? You know, I think there's a lot of debate. Is it the patient who's on high flow, breathing thirty times a minute? The patient who's intubated, if they are intubated, you know, anything that you have to do beforehand? I'd love to hear what you guys think. And Nick, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, so I think I think I completely agree with Matt's point that it is a highly abused test in medicine. And I think that's historic because I think we used to abuse right atrial pressure. Yes. And now we've sort of rebranded right atrial pressure as IVC because it's easier to obtain. It's non-invasive. And so using IVC as a trigger for giving fluids is wrong. But IVC exam can give you a lot of useful information, particularly at the extremes and in the right context. So in somebody who I would have thought was hypovolemic, they, you know, by, by story, they're dry. But then I look at them and their IVC is dilated and there's reversal of flow. That really tips me off that something is not lining up. And whenever in medicine I have a situation where kind of the actual minus the expected is not zero, that sort of makes you think like, wait a second, like what, what, what am I missing here? So I think the IVC can be very useful there. Um, I think it's also a good stepping stone exam for learners. It's an exam that is easy to get. You know, there's no ribs making that view hard. There's no lungs making that view hard. Like this is something that every intern should learn how to do and be comfortable with. And it's also a great stepping stone to more advanced ultrasound techniques like M-Mode and Doppler. Obviously, you have to learn how to do those things right. You have to save your clips so somebody can go over them with you. But if you're learning POCUS, this is a great place to start. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, that's actually the kind of number one thing that I teach if we don't have time to go through the whole cardiac exam. I just really focus on the subcostal view in, in getting those chambers and then um, really focusing on IVC. So I totally agree. It's a great place for learners to start. 
I agree with you both. Two things that I, I want to emphasize is the, the the technical aspects of it are actually really important because on one hand, if you're taking a long axis view of a cylinder and you're off the side of the cylinder, it's going to look really small. Mm-hmm. Um, if the patient's got huge uh, worker breathing, every IVC is going to collapse. Um, intra-abdominal pressure will have an effect. Intra-thoracic pressure will have an effect. So there's a lot of things that can modify it. It's a complex system, even though we think it's like a binary. The, the second thing that I will say is that sort of collapsible IVC just tells you that the venous return is threatened. It doesn't tell you why. So you could have high venous capacitance because your SVR is low and that's interpreted as uh, fluid depleted. Um, and I think that's that's where it gets off the rails a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's otherwise it's a beautiful diagnostic tool. You just have to be careful of it. And do you guys have firm cutoffs to use? Are you Do you look at collapsibility 50%, dilation, or are you doing distensibility, collapsibility indexes? You know, if our interns are learning it, is there something that you kind of, you get a general gestalt or are there any firm rules that you try to look at? So I only use it for right atrial pressure estimation. So I use it in spontaneously breathing patients with the 2.1 centimeter cutoff and the 50% collapse with inspiration. I think it's a Pretty, I, I know it's been studied extensively for preload responsiveness, but I think the test characteristics are pretty abysmal. So I don't actually use it for that purpose. So that precludes me having to do any collapsibility, distensibility, et cetera. Uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys for reviewing that for everyone. Uh, Nick, any other uh, ultrasound techniques that you think are on the more advanced end that you sometimes do if you're still not sure after all of this? It kind of depends on context. There's more sophisticated exams that you can do based on what your initial exam points you to. So for example, if you see an effusion and you're worried about tamponade, you can measure mitral inflow velocities, you can measure the right atrium with M mode, the right ventricle. There's lots of more advanced exams you can do in that context. If you're worried about RV failure and you wanna quantify that, TAPSI is a great measurement you can use in that context. VTI, so measuring the flow through either the LV outflow tract or if you can't get that view using the carotid instead, um, is really good because you can do that as a single measurement and then you can do an intervention and then you can measure again. And I think one of the really valuable things about point of care ultrasound is we can only do it at the bedside. And that forces us to keep going back to the bedside and keep reassessing. And I think good critical care really comes down to that. So if it's a forcing function to measure LV outflow tract VTI, give some fluids, start some dobutamine, start some pressors, whichever you think is appropriate, and then measure again 10 minutes later. Um, I think that is going to lead to better care. And it's okay to be wrong. If you do something and then your measurement shows that didn't help, um, get off that train, try something else. Yeah, so many principles there that I think are just the key critical care. It's like one, it's okay to be wrong with a guess as long as it's an educated guess and you have a reevaluation point. And then two, I totally agree with you. Maybe the intervention or just that you're not just sitting at a computer, you're going back and seeing the patient or something you can track. I love that. I think the nice thing about ultrasound too is that there are so many different measurements that you can use as um, Nick just told us, because there's not one sort of test. There's not not one lab abnormality, one physical exam finding that's going to give you the answer for what type of shock this is. So triangulating all these different data points and getting a couple, looking at the IVC, looking at the heart, looking at everything um, may help you get an answer because not just one thing is going to give you the answer. 
And I just wanted to say one thing too. We talked about VTI and I don't know that we defined it. You know, I think it's a, a little bit more obscure. So a velocity time index that we're using in a patient we're doing POCUS on to try to uh, get a sense of their cardiac output, but we're doing it from a POCUS standpoint. At a very high level, if you're trying to explain to somebody what VTI is, if you're trying to measure how much blood is going through a pipe at a certain time, think about it like you're standing next to a highway and you're trying to figure out how many cars are going by. Um, you, have, you need to measure two things. You need to look at one lane and count how many cars are going by. That's the VTI. That's how many cars are going by. And then you need to count how many lanes. That's the measurement of the vessel or the outflow track. You multiply those two together and you have how many cars are going by per minute. That's, that's great. Right. So if you're doing this bedside, you're getting the LV outflow track diameter and then the VTI velocity to try to get a sense of what their cardiac output is. And then like with all these things that we've been saying, then you can trend the number, right? You have a number and then you can trend it based on your VTI. Exactly. And so if you stand there and you see in one minute, 10 cars go by and then you come back and then in one minute, three cars go by, you can infer that there's fewer cars going by. You don't need to count the lanes again. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's great. I think it's also nice to remember we're all big POCUS fans here, but all of um, those data points are in like a formal echo report. And oftentimes people will just read sort of the impression or conclusion, but I'm, I'll go back and look at that, especially if it's something that I am trying to measure or if I get two echoes while someone's in-house for whatever reason. And I think it's nice to remind our learners that all of those data points are there in the echo report. You just have to read and find them. Right. But they're not in bold, so they may not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just like to add on to that, that, uh, you know, fo uh, formal echo images uh it's just like a chest x-ray. You should look at your own images, even if you didn't take them. Like if the tech took them, they're probably, honestly, they're probably better than what you did anyway. But that that's a good opportunity to kind of review it and see. You might be looking, just like a chest x-ray, you're probably looking for something different than the person that's reading it because they probably just got an echo that says it's an ICU patient that has hypotension. Um, whereas you're like, I really am trying to understand the RV or something else. And so that's why it's good to look at your own picture look at those pictures. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think we've had such a great discussion so far. And I think I was actually asked this past Friday too what my thoughts were on POCUS in a septic patient. And I, I agree um, with you all. I didn't say it quite as simple as Matt did. I think you have a great, I said it depends, um, but I think <laughs> as said, uh, if it, in the right hands and the right minds, it can be very useful. Um, but I do want to go to you now, Molly. Um, you know, I know we've talked a lot about the utility of POCUS, but what are some other techniques or tests outside of bedside ultrasound that you like to use if you're still trying to differentiate the cause of shock? Yeah, I think one that is obvious, but I've seen a lot of especially um, novice learners miss is looking at all of the data that we have already. So we often have the luxury of having labs already. So look at those labs, look at the troponin, look at the white blood cell count, um, look at the culture data from the outside hospital. Often the answer is right under our nose and we have just missed it. So I think that's such an important point to make is look at that initial EKG, look at that initial chest X-ray. I think we often get so sort of caught up in the sort of um, the critical situation, if you will, that we sort of forget some of the basics that we've all learned. Other things that I think about, um, a central venous O2, which can be a little bit controversial. I don't think one number is going to give me the answer. This is another, I think, a good caveat for early learners that some people often think low CVO2 equals cardiogenic shock, high CVO2 equals distributive shock. And that's really not the case. But just like we were talking about with, um, you know, repeat assessments of VTI, I like to 
repeatedly assess the CVO2. So I'm going to see what it is, and then I'm going to do an intervention. Maybe my hypothesis is that they need more fluid. I'm going to check the CVO2 pre and post. I don't think one value in and of itself is is good enough. And then same sort of with CVP. I kind of feel the way that we uh, that I think all of us feel about JVP. I think it can be helpful, but the isolated number in and of itself is probably not going to help you. The trend may be. And again, I can't stress it enough. Like I get all of these pieces of data and really triangulate it. So if I'm going in and thinking my pretest probability of cardiogenic shock is high, this patient is cold, they have a really low CVO2 and a really high CVP, then I'm trusting those. I'm using, I'm triangulating all that data and using the answer to come up with shock. But I think one value of any of these tests are really not helpful. Thanks, Molly. I think that's a really good highlight that you brought up too. Just because you know, I know someone asked, was asking the other day. They're like, "Well, how, I'm going to trend, you know, the the CDO twos like every four hours." But if you're not really providing specific interventions, what's the utility of doing it? So I think that was a nice way for learners to think. You know, yes, you can repeat it, but repeat it after you do an intervention to see if it's useful or not. It's also helpful for our nurses. I think we often just say we're going to check X, Y, and Z at X interval and Y. <laughs> Like, why are we doing that? So we should really be thoughtful of we want to check a test and here's what we think the test is going to tell us. And we're doing an intervention to make the test show us something. So I think it's really important to, to think about and not just send labs at regular frequencies just because of patients in the ICU. Yeah, that really speaks to me. Uh the trending things for no reason piece, especially because I, I don't really know what's the point. I mean, you can make the same argument about hemoglobin and somebody with uh, hematochesia if you know it's coming or it's not coming. Um, but yeah, this whole lactate every four hours or whatever, it's just it's not really grounded in any sort of thought process. A couple of things I want to add on to what Molly said. I agree with her assessment of, yeah, you have to take all the data points you have and put them together. And if they're coherent, then that's helpful. CVP uh, is just like the IVC. You just have to know what to do with it. Uh, it's, it's a useful diagnostic tool. It can probably tell you when you're doing things that are harmful. Like if the CVP is going up and the cardiac output's not going up and after an intervention you made, you probably caused harm because uh, you probably just distended the RV. Uh, you did not improve flow. Um, and, and it's also a nice kind of measurement to have if you have somebody that's on a ventilator and you're trying to keep an eye on the right ventricle because you're probably realistically not going to ultrasound it every couple hours. Um, and then uh, with regarding to central venous gases, yeah, I think that's it can be useful as kind of similarly at the extremes or if you have a strong pretest probability of one thing or another. The, the caveat becomes uh, when you have somebody with impaired oxygen extraction and then you could have low cardiac output with sepsis and have kind of an okay CBP or a central venous oxygen set. Uh, a test I like to add on to that if they have an arterial line is I like to do a uh, venous arterial CO2 gradient. Um, so the central venous CO2 minus the arterial CO2, that difference should be less than six. If it's more than six, that suggests uh, sort of inadequate cardiac output, sort of sluggish uh, clearance of CO2 from the venous circulation. So I think that can kind of be helpful in some of those, you know, I might be in a low flow state. Is there something I can do to improve upon it? And I think the reality is that most of our patients never fit into one box perfectly. It's usually mixed shock that we're dealing with. So yeah. those points are totally well taken. Yeah, I agree with I agree with all of those points. Those are those are fabulous points. I think one thing that I always tell people and I strive for in my plans is you could think about sort of like the okay plan, the good plan, and the great plan. The okay plan is check lactates Q4 hours. Actually, that's a bad plan. Um, <laughs> check 
mixed venous O2 every four hours. Mm -hmm. The better plan is check mixed venous O2 every four hours to monitor for uh, impaired oxygen delivery, a fall in mixed venous. Then everybody reading your note knows what you're looking for at least. But better yet is a plan with a clear what you're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. So monitor mixed venous O2 every four hours and start dobutamine if less than 60. You know, that's something where instead of there being this um, inertia in taking the next step, when that criteria happens, the nurse will page the next person and say, hey, do you want to start dobutamine? You know, that, that creates a clear bias towards taking the next step as opposed to labs that force somebody to think about those labs anew every four hours. Yeah, that's great. I like that where, you know, I think the ICU, especially medicine in general, but the ICU, especially we get a, a little bit of a checkbox culture. It's like, well, we're checking this because that's what we do. We said we do it on rounds, but that checkbox is supposed to then indicate some physiology that you're, that you're uh, reaching to after that. And then Matt, yeah, Matt, that, thanks for pointing out that CO2 gradient. I think that's something that's not used all that much. And, and but most patients have a central line and an A line if they're in bad shock. So like that's an available yeah. tool. Um, and I, I really like that you mentioned it. So Matt, I want to go to you. Uh, we talked a little bit about CVP and you talked about when it can be helpful or not. And I, I think this is a change uh, in critical care medicine that we learn about over the last you know 30 years or so, especially managing shock of when do we use a swan? You know, it, it, this is sort of our direct measurement of the pressures and cardiac output and SV, all these stats that we're talking about. So, but I feel like we've moved away from it quite a bit. So when do you kind of use a swan in the ICU? And are there situations that trigger for you uh, that it's time to place one and get some more accurate hemodynamics? Yeah, that is a great question. And I like the analogy with CVP because I do think it's another test that's kind of been mostly appropriately maligned, but there's still a place for it and we just have to use it appropriately. So I think if you have a patient who's in severe shock and you can define that however you want, and you don't know what the diagnosis is and you can't establish it some other way, I think it's a really reasonable thing to do. I don't understand how else you, you can't just put somebody on norepi and zosin and hope that it's all going to work out, right? So if somebody's not doing well, or if they have complex shock plus complex respiratory failure, I think it's another potential reason to, to have one. Now, where do I, I, I still mainly stick to the traditional uses of them. So if I have a patient with pulmonary, acute pulmonary hypertension, uh, they will have one. If I have somebody with cardiogenic shock, I will put one in. Now, do I necessarily need it in that patient? Maybe not, but it depends on if I'm trying to sell them to another service to give them mechanical circulatory <laughs> support, because then that, then it becomes really important because um, they don't want to hear about the CO2 gradient, right? They, don't want, they want some numbers. Um, so I think those are the those are the clear-cut situations. The less clear-cut situations is I have complex shock. I'm not really sure what's going on, um, and, and I need to resolve that. Um, so I, I think there's a place. Most patients don't need them. Some patients really need them and probably don't get them. But just like any other diagnostic maneuver, just like point-of-care ultrasound, if it's not going to be attached to a treatment that's going to improve their outcomes, it's not going to improve their outcomes. It's just a, just a, uh, more numbers. Um, I probably end up putting in a few a month, um, and that's more than I think what's normal in my uh, center. But the reason for that is I, I do a lot of night shifts, so I admit a lot of patients who are undifferentiated. Um, and then I also cover our procedure service. So if somebody needs one, they ask me to put one in. So, uh, so I probably do that a little bit more frequently than other people. Um, but again, I just think it's about having a very clear idea of what you're trying to get from that, that you can't get from something else. And again, if you don't know that whatever you're doing, 
whether it's we were talking about a swan or some other intervention. If you don't know the diagnosis and you're going to try to treat a really sick patient, it's going to be really, really hard. I don't know how you're going to make that patient better. Thanks, Matt. And I have a related question for Nick, you know, and, and really about volume responsiveness. Why do we think so much about volume responsiveness in the ICU? And what is one of your favorite techniques for evaluating it? So uh, it's a little bit like asking what my favorite drink is. It depends, right? If you ask any expert a question, the answer is it depends. But, you know, sometimes sometimes coffee, usually coffee, sometimes water, occasionally beer. Um, fluid responsiveness, similar. Uh, it kind of depends on what, what tools are at your disposal um, in general that if you – I should back up and say in general – you should read about fluid responsiveness on my website. I have a whole one-pager on this. It's a complex topic and it deserves time. But to simplify it, you can think about fluid responsiveness measurements as either static or dynamic. And in general, dynamic measurements are better. You can also think about them as invasive, such as with a SWAN or an A-line, or less invasive, such as NICOM or N-tidal CO2. In general, the, the invasive measurements perform better. Like Matt, as a night doc, I do a lot of swans. I like swans. I think they're very useful both to differentiate undifferentiated shock and to guide therapy. Uh, they can give you a lot of information that other methods can't. Um, it's also nice to work in a cardiac ICU where a lot of patients come to me with swans. So I can just depend on them because somebody else put them in in the OR for me. For patients with an arterial line, I love pulse pressure variation, but you have to be very careful about when you apply it. The idea that pulse pressure variation reflects fluid responsiveness only applies if you meet certain caveats. And I won't go through those right now, but it's really important that you double check that. Then as far as less invasive measures go, um, I love NICOM. I love NICOM for two reasons. One, my excellent ICU nurses can do it independently and sequentially. So it's another data point that we can trend over time. And two, it actually has pretty good performance characteristics. And then finally, you know, I think POCUS is very valuable. I think most fluid responsiveness is about measure, uh, challenge, measure. And so POCUS is really most valuable in determining fluid responsiveness if you're doing it serially. So you have to be going back to the bedside after a test bolus, for example. Thanks so much, Nick. And I wanted to, um, I know some people um, listening today may not be so familiar with NICOM. Can you maybe summarize that? Absolutely. So NICOM stands for non-invasive cardiac output measurement. It's a type of bioreactance, which basically means that you put uh, four pairs of electrodes on the person's chest. Those electrodes impart an electric field to any fluid in the chest. And then as blood moves out from the heart, it changes the phase of that electric field, which those sensors detect. So it sounds really fancy and futuristic. Um, it kind of is. Um, it's a device that you basically need to put a, a couple of electrodes on and you can measure cardiac output. And we almost always pair this with a maneuver. And that maneuver could be either uh, a passive leg raise, which theoretically at least shunts fluid into the central circulation and should increase your cardiac output if you're fluid responsive, or um, a bolus. And typically, if you're going to do this, it should be a smaller bolus, like 250 or 500 cc's, given rapidly. Thanks so much for clarifying. And Molly or Matt, anything else that you'd want to add, either about NICOM or about any other uh, volume responsiveness techniques that you like to do in your ICUs? 
I'll say I feel the same way as Nick. I think it depends on the day and depends on the patient. I'm not sure that I have a favorite, but I, I definitely am a big proponent of the NICOM. And I, I think it's nice to leave on for the whole day and really see, again, following up, give a bolus of what happens, and then look at the other interventions you're doing and, and see what happens. So I really am a huge fan of the NICOM is probably, if I had to pick a favorite, um, which I don't believe that there is one true answer, again, I triangulate all the data, but if I had to pick a favorite, it would be the NICOM. So if I could uh, maybe be a little philosophical for a second, uh, I think the first question of volume responsiveness is why am I looking for it uh, and, and what am I hoping to accomplish? So you you're, you have a patient that's in shock and for whatever reason you think they're the type of shock in which they need extra, they need their volume expanded. So you're, the, the primary question is, if I give this person fluid, is their stroke volume going to increase? Um, because a lot of times people will give fluid and check their blood pressure or all these other you know things or check their lactate. And these are things that don't necessarily correspond with increase in stroke volume. The, uh, the, the, neat, the, 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 the thing about uh, preload responsiveness and particularly septic shock patients is it's actually pretty difficult for all the reasons that have been mentioned in terms of what limitations each of the different technologies have. The great news is, though, it usually doesn't matter for that long because after the first few hours, almost nobody is volume responsive. And a, a, a good way to see this is look at uh, the supplementary data from the Andromeda shock trial. About af Those patients, when they were enrolled in the trial, had about 25 uh, cc's per kg of fluid given uh, before they were enrolled. And then at hour zero, about 60% of them were volume responsive. By hour six, again, not, not six days later, hour six, the, the, the volume responsiveness was down to like less than 10% of patients were volume responsive. So it's a really rapidly, uh, um, it's an ephemeral phenomenon. And that's why I think we, it's good to have good techniques that are valid, but we shouldn't overemphasize it. Cause then it's something like, does this septic shock patient just need more fluids to get better? The question, the answer to that question is almost never. Yes. Um, just <laughs> philosophically, right. There's like source control or, you know, other issues at play, but to, to actually answer the question that was asked now, um, the techniques that we teach are um, passive leg raising with some sort of cardiac output measurement. Um, we have a arterial waveform analysis type of machine, uh, the LIDCO, no conflicts of interest, um, and uh, or or by uh, change in VTI, that would be another possibility. Fluid challenge for sure. It seems like the right dose of fluid challenge is uh, about four ml per kg is the right number to give you sort of the best combination of sensitivity and specificity. And yeah, like Nick said, it's got to be rapid. Um, we do, I use pulse pressure variation a lot, uh, and I use uh, end expiratory occlusion, and I think that pretty much sums up the techniques that would be useful. Um, but yeah, they each have their own caveats, and, and read Nick's one pager because then that's how you'll learn all those details. I guess one other one that I should add, because we've talked about basically all of them now, the one other one to add that I think is sometimes useful is end-tidal CO2 yes. um, with a passive leg raise. If yes. you see a 5% increase in end-tidal with a passive leg raise, that's actually a pretty good predictor of responsiveness. And that's probably one that I personally tend to underuse and probably should use more. It's essentially yeah. free. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's already there. Um, it only requires that the patient has stable ventilation because obviously if their ventilation is changing, then you'll be, you'll have an issue, but, it, but yeah, it's a beautiful test. That's great. I'm, I'm, we're also going to refer you to Nick's one pager, but I think this is great to, you know, you pick your technique for tracking cardiac output and response, and then you do an intervention and then look for a response. And I love to emphasize that point that a bolus for fluid responsiveness is a bolus and it's fast. You know, it's not, it's not 500 cc's over two hours to see what happens afterwards. 
and I, I also just want to emphasize for everyone listening, the, the, the points that were made about PA catheters, I feel like we said these can be really useful. And I think a lot of time the wisdom that PA catheters are not necessary in pure septic shock has sort of dis, you know disseminated that we don't need PA catheters at all in undifferentiated shock, which is sort of not the case. I, I want to wrap up with the last question for you, Molly. You know, we talked about like a bunch of times having sort of specific things we're looking for and a plan for intervention. So when you're in the ICU, you have a patient that came in undifferentiated shock, and then you have a plan, you're coming back in either PM rounds or the next morning. What are the biggest trackers you're going to ask your team to be watching for? Like what information do you want to know about that patient the next morning to, to make your next decision and your next move? Yeah, before I answer that, if I, um, Matt's inspiring me to be a little philosophical too, I think one of the biggest um, points that I want to pass along, especially to learners, is that like it's okay to not know. And we get into trouble when we like hand wave, oh, it's probably septic. Um, I find myself signing out more, right? I write a lot when I'm not sure. And I will say undifferentiated shock, I think X, Y, or Z because of X, Y, or Z, or I don't think it's PE because their RV looked fine. Um, so I think that's so important. It's okay not to know. And using those words, undifferentiated shock, until you find out is, is so important. Um, and then following up at regular time intervals. So I'm when I go home at night, I'm looking. I want to see what their lactate's doing. Is it come down? If I'm following their central venous O2, because we did an intervention, I'm going to look for that. It's hard for me to kind of rattle off things, Dave, because I think it's so important to sort of pick the test that you're that you're looking at and what was the intervention. Um, so it's it's so hard to just say I'm following lactate every four hours because the surviving sepsis told me to, or I'm following CVO2 because our hospital um, policy said that we should. So I'm really thinking, what is this, what is the type of shock? Uh, what do I think is the type of shock? And then what, are, what am I following? Um, but the usual things for, is a patient getting better or not? If they're on pressors, are they off pressors now? Or are they on lower doses of pressors or on their higher doses? If they're on the vent, what are their vent settings? Are they better, worse, the same? And then I'm looking for those uh, markers of end organ perfusion. Are they making urine now and they weren't yesterday? Is their creatinine improved? Um, is their mentation better on rounds than it was the day before? So really looking at all of those markers of end organ dysfunction. Awesome. Yeah, I think this has been um, a fantastic last hour. I think I can't believe how fast it went by. And I've learned so many uh, pearls myself. And I think our listeners will really enjoy this. So I'd like to thank the three of you and want us to leave, though, with some final takeaways. Um, so we'll be asking each one of you one key point you think our learners should remember. And I think mine um, is going to be the Shuba bus. Um, I think I want to be on the Shuba bus um, and use that as well. So that was looking um, when you're doing an initial exam, looking at uh, BUS, which was brain, urine and skin. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I, I like that initial point they were making that shock does not always need to be hypotensive, uh, that you're really looking at this mismatch of O2 delivery and O2 consumption so that we, we know how we're categorizing these patients. Molly? Geez, there are so many. I also really love uh, Matt's bus and I like <laughs> Nick's um, pump pipes and tank. But I think if I will just stay on my soapbox, I, <laughs> I think there's not one piece of data that will give you the answer. You have to get lots of data and triangulate it and you have to continue to reassess and follow up. Awesome. What about you, Nick? Those are great points. Yeah. Hard, hard to find much to add to that. I think, you know, I view assessment of shock at shock is a clinical gestalt. Um, it's not one number. It's not one measurement. Um, 
if you're Bayesian, you start with your priors about what could be causing it. And then that changes as you learn more and shock is treated at the bedside. You can't, you can't effectively diagnose or treat shock from far away. You need to be reassessing your patient. Awesome. And Matt, can you wrap, uh, wrap us up with your final takeaway point? I think the important thing to emphasize is, you know, we started this as a talk about undifferentiated shock, and that means we don't know the diagnosis. And I just really want to hone in on that point that it's really hard to take care of a patient if you don't know what the right diagnosis is. And you, you can't prematurely stop because of, you know, inertia or, you know, most patients that get admitted to my unit have X type of shock, so it must be that. So it really, it really takes a lot of mental effort. And then that follow-up is really important. Uh, the follow-up is important because you need to know if your treatment worked, but you also need to know, was my diagnosis right? Because things evolve over time. And one of the best diagnostic tools we have is observation over time. All great points. Well, thank you all for joining us so much. This was a great episode. Uh, make sure everyone to check out Nick's website at onepagericu.com, Matt's at zentensivist.com. And if you want to hear more critical care content, Molly has a course she runs at criticalmedboston.com where you can sign up there. Thank you guys all so much. And uh, we'll see you out there taking care of undifferentiated shock patients. Mm -hmm.